now in the time of this mortal life in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in Matthew chapter 5. Before we begin uh, taking a look further at the Sermon on the Mount, however, I want to say a word about the uh, piece of artwork that I showed you last week. Um, I was reticent at first to put it on the screen, as I told you, but once I put it on the screen, I received so many inquiries at the end of the class as to who the artist was that I thought I ought to probably give you a little bit of an art lesson. That, of course, was the painting that I put up. It's the uh, Good Samaritan. The artist is a Frenchman, uh, mid-19th century. His name was Ami Moreau, and um, he was quite remarkable. That's a picture of the artist himself. He was remarkable not only in terms of his ability, uh, but in his ability to cross genres. Um, he did all kinds of artwork. Uh, he did a lot of religious artwork. That's a, a remarkable picture of the crucifixion that you see up there in the corner. Um, but his real area of expertise was in huge military scenes. Um, he did a number of military paintings, very action-packed scenes. He made his bread and butter not doing military scenes or religious scenes, but doing society portraits. Uh, so he could do portraiture, he could do large military scenes, he did classical works of religious art, and on top of everything else, he crossed over from painting to sculpture as well. So uh, really a, a gifted individual, and if it's somebody you've never heard of, it may be somebody you want to do some research on, but his name was M.A. Moreau, 1850 to 1913. So for those of you who are fascinated by that piece of artwork, um, many of his works are available online so you can see them, but uh, an extraordinary individual. His father-in-law was likewise a, a famous artist, so... Um, I would wonder what the children were like um, with all of that DNA running uh, through their veins and through their bodies. So a little bit of an art introduction as we begin today. But we're going to take a look at uh, Matthew's gospel today. So if you will turn now to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're actually going to pick up the text at Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 says 1 through 12 on the screen, and we're going to look at that, but we're going to begin today at verse 13. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead, and we're going to read through verse 20. Matthew writes, you are the, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, for I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished." Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness 
exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We said that the Sermon on the Mount, this most famous section of Matthew's Gospel, really is a description of what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. When I taught the series on the Sermon on the Mount, and when we started just this section a couple of weeks ago, I emphasized that this section is not meant to be a prescription. That is to say, Jesus is not saying, you do these things, and by virtue of your hard work and your efforts, you'll become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Over and over again in the New Testament, the message is made very clear. You and I are saved by grace, not by works. And that grace is received through the conduit of faith. And so good works have a place in the Christian life, but they are not the means to salvation. They are the fruit of it. They are the result of it. So the Sermon on the Mount, again, just to emphasize, is not a prescription. It's not prescriptive. It is descriptive. It is describing what a citizen of the kingdom of God, if in fact we are citizens of the kingdom of God, what our lives will be like. And we said that this most famous section of this most famous portion of the book The Beatitudes can be divided up basically into a couple of sections. The first section is where in the first four Beatitudes, basically what Jesus is doing is describing the inner attitude of a citizen of the kingdom of God. If we are really subjects of the king, if we are citizens of that other kingdom, the kingdom that is not of this world, then our lives will be characterized by these things. We will be poor in spirit. We will be mournful, mournful of our sins. We will not only acknowledge, but bewail our manifold sins and our wickedness. We will be meek, which is to say we will trust that God will vindicate us, and we will be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That's the inner quality, if you will, or the inner attitude of a citizen of the kingdom of God. The next four Beatitudes describe the inner character of a citizen. And what is the character of a citizen of the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus said they are merciful. Well, because they have received mercy. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. Pure in heart. That is to say they will have an undivided heart, a heart that is set on God and God alone. They will be peacemakers, which is to say they will long for a relationship, a right relationship with God. They've been at war with God. They long to have peace with God. And by virtue of the fact that they have peace with God, They seek to have peace with one another as well. And finally, he says, they will be persecuted. The citizen of the kingdom of God is not surprised when persecution comes his or her way. For in the same way, Jesus said, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So that is the introduction, if you will, to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And they described, as I said, the inner attitude of the citizen the inner character of the citizen of the kingdom of God. Well, now we come to this section, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and following, in which Jesus describes the influence that the kingdom of God and a citizen of the kingdom of God is supposed to have on the world around them. In other words, if we have this inner attitude, if we have this inner character described in those eight Beatitudes, the introduction to this great sermon, then it should mean that we will make a difference. We will have an influence upon the world. Jesus doesn't say, do these things and you may be the salt of the earth. He says, if you do these things, you are the salt of the earth. He says, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, you will be 
a light in the midst of the darkness. And we talked uh, last week about what it meant to be salt and light. We said that salt in the ancient world in an age before refrigeration was used primarily as a preservative. You would salt meat in order to preserve it. It helped to stem the, the tide of decay and putrefaction. And so when Jesus calls his disciples or his followers the salt of the earth, what he's saying is that if we are living as described here in these Beatitudes, then we will have that effect upon the world. We will help to stem the decay of moral and spiritual putrefaction. Now, if you look at our world today, uh, you can see that it is a very different world. I don't know how many of you watched the funeral of George H.W. Bush yesterday, but it was very moving. Uh, it, was, it was very powerful. And one of the most powerful things, I think it was Paul Mulroney, who was the former um, Prime Minister of Canada, was just talking about President Bush and how he started off. And of course, everybody mentioned his service during World War II. But it was shocking. That, that young man left college and enlisted in the United States Navy at 18. And at 20, his plane was shot down, his entire crew jettisoned. He turned the plane around, finished his bombing mission, and then splashed down. And as he bailed out of the plane, he flew back and hit his head on the tail fin of the, of the plane and was bleeding out there in the open ocean until he was ultimately rescued. And somebody asked the question, what are most 20-year-olds doing today? George H.W. Bush, at 20 years old, was out risking his life and leading men to save the free world. He was making a difference, you see. And if we're serious about our Christian life, we should be making a difference as well, helping to preserve a world that is in moral and spiritual decline. And I think we can all agree that the world is not in a good place. Second of all, we said that salt serves as a condiment. Uh, one of the things that it does is it brings out the flavor in food. Uh, food without salt is bland. It's tasteless. Well, life without Jesus Christ is likewise bland and tasteless. People have everything that money can buy, and yet they still seem to long for more. There is something missing in their lives that they cannot fill. Well, we know what that is. We know what true joy is. Happiness Happiness is a fleeting thing. It is always dependent upon your circumstances. If things are going your way, you're happy. But what about things when they don't go your way? And frequently in life, you're going to discover sooner or later they're not going to go your way. What the Christian offers to the world is something that transcends your circumstances. It's not happiness, it's joy. We said that salt serves a medicinal purpose. It helps to heal things. If you get a cut on your leg and you go into the ocean into the salt water, you'll notice that the salt actually helps to facilitate the healing process. And that's what we're supposed to do. There's a lot of brokenness in our world, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain in our world, and you and I as Christian people are to point them to the one who is the great physician. We are to serve as salt, have a medicinal value. One of the other things we pointed out was that salt was common in the ancient world. It's common today. You can find it almost everywhere. It's not of great or immense value, like diamonds or oil or something like that. And yet, what is life without salt? Well, that means that you and I, just as common individuals, you don't have to be an expert in theology. You don't have to have a Ph.D. in something in order to be effective in terms of your Christian witness. And finally, we pointed out that the remarkable thing about salt is that when you rub it into something, whether you rub it into the meat 
or you take it spiritually and rub it into the culture, it does disappear, but you can still taste it. It becomes invisible, but you can still taste it and you can still see its effect. So when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, this is part of what he means. He says, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, truly, this is what your life will mean for the world. He goes on to say, you are also the light of the world. Now, it's interesting because in John's gospel, Jesus describes himself as the light. He said, I am the light of the world. But he also says that we are the light of the world. Now, obviously, we are not a light in the same way that Jesus is. Our light is like the light of the moon. We reflect the glory and the majesty of the Savior. But nevertheless, we are a light. And the moon, while it is not as bright as the sun, it does illuminate. And what does light do? He said it does two things. It exposes. Most crimes take place when? At dark. <laughs> in fact, I tell you, I, I heard one day I was um, closing the shutters uh, in our upstairs library and I was closing the shutters, and I looked down on the street, on Church Street. And I got my neighbors around here, so this is a word of the wise for you. But as I was looking, there was a man coming down the street, trying every handle on everybody's door as he came down the street. In other words, he was going to rob cars. And I rapped on the window, and he looked up at me, and I looked down at him, and he took off running. Did he see my collar? No, I'm afraid not. I was in my pajamas, which is probably more frightening. Uh, <laughs> but light exposes, doesn't it? That's exactly what I did. I exposed him, and what did he do? The first thing he did was he fled. And that's what light will do. It will expose the creatures of the night, the creatures of the darkness, and they will flee. But it also causes growth. To be exposed is a painful thing. And yet, under the searching light of Christ, we discover that our hearts can grow. He may expose our sin, our brokenness, our fallenness, the fact that we don't have it all together. And yet, by His grace and the searching light of His love, we can grow, grow into the full stature of Christ. And so that's what Jesus said, a citizen of the kingdom of God is called to be, and that's the influence they are to have upon the world. But then Jesus went on to ask this question, and this is the part we didn't get to last week. Jesus says, but what happens if the salt loses its flavor, or what happens if the light is covered? What happens, he said, if the salt loses its flavor, it's not good for anything except to be what? Thrown out and trampled underfoot. It's no longer good for anything. You are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What happens if the salt loses its saltiness? I was teaching on this one time some years ago, and somebody who was a, a chemist raised his hand and he said, this is impossible. And I said, what do you mean it's impossible? And he said, salt cannot lose its saltiness. Salt is one of the most stable substances in the world, sodium chloride. So, what do you, Jesus got it wrong. <laughs> well, I'm not a chemist, um, but I can tell you two things. You understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus' point is, if you're not performing your function, what good are you? And furthermore, I discovered that a salt really can lose its saltiness. At least salt the way that Jesus understood it in the first century. Uh, most salt in the Middle East came from the area in and around the Dead Sea. 
And some of you have actually been to the Dead Sea. Some of you went swimming in the Dead Sea with us. And I stood on the beach and took pictures, um, <laughs> which can and will be used against you at some point in the future. But the Dead Sea has such a high concentration of salt that nothing can survive in it except some very hardy bacteria. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. And one of the things that you'll notice is that there is a powdery substance that is always around the outside, on the rocks and so forth. Now, in the rainy season, the monsoon season that comes generally in the wintertime, uh, the rains will come down and that powdery substance that you see there contains salt, but it contains a lot of other things as well. And when the rains come, what happens is the salt actually gets washed out, but the powdery substance is left behind. And in the ancient world, that world, they didn't understand the chemical composition of salt, per se. They didn't understand that that powdery substance contained a lot of other elements as well. But what they saw was that there, were, there was a time when that powdery substance tasted salty, and then after the rains, it was washed out, and it was still powdery, it's still white, but it didn't have the saltiness. And in the ancient world, this, this salt would have been collected and it would have been used to do all of the things that Jesus describes there. It would have been used for medicinal purposes. It would have been used as a condiment. It would have been used as a preservative. But once the salt was washed out, there was the substance, but it didn't have that saltiness anymore. And so what was it good for? It was useless. It was good for nothing, Jesus said, except to be thrown out. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? In other words, if we claim to be Christians, but we are not making any difference whatsoever on the culture around us, Jesus is asking a serious question here, what good are we? What good are we? What good is a light if its purpose is to illuminate and cause growth, but you take it and you put it under a bucket? Or under a basket? What purpose does it serve then? Well, this is what Jesus is saying to us. If we are citizens of the kingdom of God, if we have been called by God into His glorious fellowship, we have been called for a purpose. You've heard me talk about this before. We have been saved from something, from sin and death and judgment. But we have also what? Been saved for something. To live a new life. And that life, as I said in the sermon on Sunday, the purpose is not just for us to get our ticket punched and go to heaven. The purpose is to make a difference in the here and now. That's what the church is all about. A church that is not making a difference in the culture for the person of Jesus Christ is no good at all. It's lost its saltiness. It's hidden its light under a bushel. And what's true for the collective is, of course, true for us as individuals because what is the church but a collection of individuals called into the service of Christ? So you ask the question, well, then practically speaking, on a day-to-day -day basis, what does it mean to be salt and light in the world? What, is, what does that look like? If that's what we're called to be, if we claim to be citizens of the kingdom, subjects of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, what does it look like to be salt and light in our culture? Well, here are just a, a few suggestions. The first thing it means is that we are going to be more outspoken in condemning evil. That's what light does. It exposes, doesn't it? And as Christians, you and I have an obligation to call evil, evil. 
We have a responsibility to point out injustice when it is taking place. We have an obligation to do what Jesus did, and that is to stand up for the downtrodden, the hurting. When we see wickedness in the world, and wickedness does exist, you and I have a responsibility as Christians. If Christians do not stand up against wickedness and evil in the world, who is going to? See, that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He stood up to evil. Now, what did Satan say to Jesus? He said, unless you bow the knee to me. He did at the end of Jesus' ministry what he did at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will simply bow down to me. And Jesus refused to do that. We saw that in the temptation here in Matthew's gospel. At the end of Jesus' ministry, what did Satan say? You won't bow down to me, but if you don't, forget all the kingdoms of the earth. I'm going to kill you. And what was Jesus' response? He mounted the arms of the cross and he said, have at it. And in so doing, the Apostle Paul said he disarmed Satan. He disarmed the powers and the principalities of this world. But the point is, Jesus did not back down from evil. He called it what it was and he confronted it. And you and I have to be willing to do that in the world today. There's a great deal of evil and a great deal of injustice. And very often, we don't want to get involved. Isn't that the truth? I don't want to get involved. But you see, if we don't get involved, we're not really being the light of the world. This is the confessing church in Germany in the 1930s with the rise of fascism and the rise of the Nazi party. Uh, there were many people, particularly in the established church, many in the Roman Catholic Church in Italy with the rise of fascism there, that sort of capitulated, that gave in, that tried to cooperate with the government. But there was a movement in Germany led by a number of theologians, people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for example, and the famous theologian Karl Barth, who stood against that kind of tyranny and refused to collaborate with it refused to cooperate with it. And some of those men suffered greatly. Karl Barth had to flee. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as you know, was imprisoned and ultimately executed by the order of the Fuhrer himself. But the confessing church refused to give in when the establishment was doing just that. There are going to be many people in the world, particularly in our day and age, who are going to capitulate to the culture, who are going to go along in order to get along. And part of being salt and light in the world is that we are willing to stand up against that. We are willing to call it out if necessary. Another way in which we are salt and light in the world is we are more authentic in terms of our piety. Uh, to put this in a, in a colloquial fashion, it's walking the walk and talking the talk. Not just talking the talk, but not the walk. It's one thing to profess Jesus Christ with your lips, but in your lives, there's no evidence whatsoever that He is Lord. Now, this is one of the things that the millennial generation complains about older generations, my generation and older. They complain about the fact that we don't seem to be very authentic. We say one thing with our lips, but our lives indicate something very different. Now, what they're looking for is authenticity. In a former age, what did we call it when a person said one thing but did another? <laughs> hypocrisy. That's right. Hypocrisy. And, and do you know that the Greek word for hypocrisy means to wear a mask? That's what it means. 
to wear a mask. And that's what a hypocrite does. They wear a mask. It comes from the Greek plays, that used to, the dramas that used to be put on in the ancient world. When an actor came out on the stage, he wore a mask to portray his figure. Whether it was a tragedy, he wore a tragic mask. Or a comedy, he wore a comic mask. And there are many of us that are living our lives with masks on, you see. And the challenge of the Christian gospel is to take the mask off. Anupokritos is the Greek. Take it off that people might see us for what we really are. We need to be authentic in the way we live our lives as Christians. What mask are you wearing today? Being salt and the light in the world also means that we will be more fearless in terms of our daily lives. And more fearless doesn't mean just standing up to evil. It means more fearless in terms of our willingness to what? Be associated with Jesus Christ. Be associated with Jesus Christ. Now I know that that can be challenging for us. It can be frightening. And yet the prophet Isaiah says that he will go with us. God will go with us wherever we go. But are we ashamed sometimes? People don't know that we're, we're Christians. I, I'm, this is a confession. All right, this is a confession on my part. Uh, when I first moved to Charleston, I was getting my hair cut at a particular place. I'm not going to tell you where. But every time I went in there, and the woman who was cutting my hair found out that I was a clergyman. A haircut that should have taken, I mean, look at this. It should have taken about 10 minutes to get my hair cut. It took an hour and a half. She poured out her whole life to me. I mean, everything that was going on. And I found out that she was not the exception. Everybody in the shop had some issues. So the next time I went in there, it was the only place I could get in. It was a new girl. And she said, what do you do? And I said, I'm in sales. <laughs> it wasn't that I was ashamed to be associated with Christ, but I was in a hurry. But we've been there. We've all been there. There are those times when we really don't want anybody to know that we're associated with Jesus Christ. I was afraid she was going to say, and what do you sell? And I was going to say, well, insurance. What kind of insurance? Fire and life. That's, that's <laughs> wouldn't have been entirely dishonest, would it? More intentional in sharing our faith. Not just being associated with Christ, but a willingness to share our faith. There are many people that are willing to be associated with Christ, but they are very reluctant to share their faith. How do they put it? They say, well, my faith is a private manner. Have you ever heard somebody say that it's a private matter? I want you to understand something today. The Christian faith is not a private matter. It may be a deeply personal matter, but it is not a private matter. What were Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascended? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That is what we are called to do. The church exists, someone once said, by mission as a fire exists by burning. By the way, that is why the two great religions that are in competition with each other in the 21st century world, and I think we're going to see this in the decades to come, are Christianity and Islam. Do you know why? 
You know why that's where the real rub is between those two religions? Because they are the only two religions in the world that have a missionary mandate. The Jews do not have a missionary mandate. Their calling in the Old Testament is to come out from among them and be separate. The Hindus do not have a missionary mandate. The Buddhists do not have a missionary mandate. But Islam has a missionary mandate, and Christianity has a missionary mandate. We are both to go out and make disciples, which means that ultimately we're in competition with each other, aren't we? It's like Burger King and McDonald's on the same street down there. Those two are competing for the same customers. And that's exactly what Christianity and Islam are doing. And that's why you can expect to see more and more difficulties between these two faiths in the years to come. Now, of course, the way we make disciples are different. Christian mandate is to make disciples by peaceful means. That's the most remarkable thing about the early church. The early church brought the Roman Empire to its knees within the short span of 300 years from the fall and the destruction of Jerusalem. 300 years. That's, that's the greatest success story in the world. In an age before the internet and telephone and the printing press and all of those things, they brought the nations to their knees without firing a shot. By peaceful means, they gently insinuated themselves like salt and light into the world until eventually they left the Romans with nothing but the empty temples of their gods. As one famous historian put it, he said, Caesar and Christ met in the arena and Christ triumphed. And that's what happened in the ancient world, and that is the way it's supposed to happen today with Christians. Now, Islam has a missionary mandate, too. Their mandate is to make disciples of all men by peaceful means, if possible, by any means, if necessary. So that is why there is this challenge. But that is our calling, you see to be intentional in the sharing of our faith. And look at the way the Apostle Paul puts it there in Romans. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 10. Paul says something rather remarkable here. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, that's good news, isn't it? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not just the, 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 the wealthy, and not just the poor, not just the influential, not just those who are of common stock. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's hope for everyone. But then he goes on to say this in verse 14. He says, but how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how are they supposed to hear the message unless somebody preaches to them? And how is somebody to preach to them unless somebody is sent to them? Now, you're thinking to yourself, perhaps, well, that's your job. You're the preacher. You're the minister. That's what we pay you for. So go on out there and do your job. Well, it's interesting. In the Catechism, in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, there are a whole series of questions and answers. And one of the questions is this, who are the ministers of the church? 
And do you know what the answer is? Here's the question. Well, that's not the answer. <laughs> Part of the answer, but that's not the answer. There's a specific answer in the, in the, in the catechism. Who are the ministers of the church? There you go. You got it. The answer in the prayer book. Somebody knows their catechism. The answer in the prayer book to the question, who are the ministers of the church? Lay persons, bishops, priests, and deacons. So there are four orders of ministers in the life of the church. Yes, the bishops, of course, as the chief shepherd of a diocese. Yes, the priests, who have the responsibility of preaching the gospel on Sunday and building up the congregation and the saints for the work of ministry. Certainly the deacons who have that responsibility of servant ministry in the life of the church. But it's interesting to note that in that list of ministers, in the Book of Common Prayer, in the Catechism, the ones who come first as ministers of the church are laypersons. Laypersons. Anybody have their prayer book out there? Nobody? I want to read you the second question that comes after that. I encourage you to go back and look at the Catechism sometime because it's really quite remarkable and we can learn a great deal from it. It's on page 855. Who are the ministers of the church? The ministers of the church are laypersons, bishops, priests, and deacons. What is the ministry of the laity? Now, it implies that each one of these orders has their own specific responsibility. What is the ministry of the laity, do you suppose? Answer. The ministry of laypersons is to represent Christ and His church and to bear witness to Him wherever they may be, and, according to the gifts given them, to carry on Christ's work of reconciliation in the world, and to take their place in the life, worship, and governance of the church. That's your job. <laughs> and you're not getting paid for it. Because you've already been paid, you see. Jesus Christ paid for your salvation. But that is the ministry, that is the calling of laypersons to represent Christ and His church. Absolutely. Authentic piety. To bear witness to Him wherever they may be. Be fearless in your daily life more intentional in sharing your faith because it goes on to say, and to carry on Christ's work of reconciliation in the world and to take your place in the life, worship, and governance of the church of Christ. That's what it means to be salt and light in the world. Who are the ministers of the church? We are all ministers of the church. Bishops, priests, and deacons, but first in the list, leading them all, by virtue of your baptism, every lay person, every man and woman. And what that means is that if you are living out your life, if you're being salt in the life in the world, it also means that you're willing to pay a price for your faith. Jesus has already said, if you live like this, you are going to be an irritant. Paul says you'll be the fragrance of life to some, You'll be the fragrance of death 
to others. There'll be others who hear your preaching by the way you live and by the words that you speak, by the company that you keep. They will see your witness and they will find it to be the most wonderful thing. You'll provoke them to jealousy and they say, I don't know what it is that you have, but I want to be a part of it. Others, on the other hand, like light, will be repulsed by the message that you bring and you'll hear the message, don't go preaching at me. But if you're going to be salt and light in the world, you have to be willing to pay a price for your sin. Jesus said, as the world has treated me, so will the world treat you. So this is what it means to be salt and light in the world. It is to make a difference. It is the most fulfilling thing you will ever do. It is the riskiest thing you will ever do. But regardless, it is what you are called to do. Now let me just pause there for a moment before we move on to the next section and see if there are any questions about any of that. Because that's, that's pretty challenging stuff. Bill. Someone says to you, as it said to me once, don't give me that Christian stuff. Where do you go from there? Do you just kind of back off, give them a little space, and do you maintain that relationship, which I've tried to do, but not be in your face? Um, at what point do you knock the dust off your feet and Go on to the next. Yeah, that's a good question. Do you all hear the question? The question was, what do you do when you're in a situation where you try to share your faith with somebody and they take offense and they say, don't give me any of that Christian stuff? Where do you go from there? Uh, do you continue to maintain the relationship? Do you try to witness? Um, do you back off? When do you get to the point where you realize... Uh, as the New Testament puts it, you're casting your pearls before swine and you brush the dust off your feet and you move on. I think one of the things you have to remember is that at the heart of Christianity is relationship. All right? Uh, we used to have down in Beaufort these fellows that came from this primitive Baptist church and they would stand out in, on the main street down there, Bay Street in Beaufort in front of Lipsitz Shoes, and they would get up on a soapbox and they had this portable amplification system and they would just shout at people, Bible verses and repent for the day is at hand. And, you know, what was interesting was everything they said was true. That was, that was the ironic thing. And yet they were so offensive that nobody could hear the message. We need to realize that, first of all, the gospel can be offensive. Jesus says it will be offensive to some people. What we have to make sure is that we're not the offensive part. It's one, where it's one thing if the gospel is offensive. It's another thing if the messenger is offensive. So that's the first thing we need to realize. Second thing we need to realize, it's about relationship. I mean, Christianity, as you've heard me say before, is not about religion, it's about relationship. And sometimes what has to happen is that we have to gain a hearing. We have to build a relationship. We have to build a relationship of trust 
so that we actually have a hearing. This is one of the things that the Apostle Paul tried to do wherever he went. We're told that he reasoned with them in the synagogues from the Scriptures. That is to say, he tried to find some common ground to begin having a relationship with them. The same thing happened when Paul went to Athens and he went up on Mars Hill. He tried to find some point of contact with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers by which he could gain a hearing. Sometimes what we want in our fast-paced microchip culture, what we want is we want instant results. I want to do my job and I want to get it done. I want to get out of here. I want to go in and I want to preach to you and if you don't want to hear it, well, then I'm gone. Christian ministry is an investment. It is an investment of energy and it is an investment of time. Oftentimes with millennials, this is one of the things I think Ryan Street could probably tell you better than anybody else because he's trying to minister to the, common, uh, to the college kids up there at the end of King Street. He's trying to, to reach out to them. And let me tell you, you don't have to go over to Africa or to China to find a foreign culture. <laughs> you can go to the College of Charleston and you will find a different culture. They dress a different way, they think a different way, they talk a different kind of lingo, it's different. And they believe a different way from the majority of the people who were raised in this culture in this room today. That's just a fact. But simply going up there and preaching to them is not going to work. What he's trying to do is get up there, be, speed, be seen, and build a relationship. And once you begin to build a relationship, then you can begin to have that kind of a conversation. Now, when somebody says, well, I, if we're going to be friends, you're going to have to tone down your Christianity. Then I think there's an opportunity to say to that person, look, we're living in a world in which we're told, if you don't accept what I do, you can't accept who I am. Well, you know what? What's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. I think as Christians, we can say the same thing. This is who we are. And we're not ashamed about being associated with Jesus Christ. Now, we have to look for the right opportunities to share the gospel. We have to be winsome and attractive in the way of doing it. This is good news after all. The gospel is good news. And the world is in desperate need of good news. And so I think that the answer to that is it takes time and it takes effort. And often we don't want to put that kind of time and energy into it. It's like raising kids. It's like training dogs, you know? You know, people say, oh, I want a dog. And oftentimes it's the case that they like the idea of a dog better than they actually like the dog because they're messy, aren't they? They can chew up your furniture. They can spot your rugs. They can do any number of things, and you've got to get them early on. Somebody was coming up to me, and they said, I understand you had a, a golden retriever some years ago, and it was the best dog ever. And I said, yeah, he was a great dog. And they said, well, how did you train him? And I said, well, we did this and this. They said, would you mind coming over and helping me? And I said, well, uh, yeah, how old is your dog? She said, he's 14. I said, whoa, forget <laughs> it. It's too late, you see. You've got to start at the beginning, and it's hard, and it takes effort. And the same thing is true in any relationship, folks. Those of you who've been married, you know this. It isn't always easy. It's not always that first flush of romantic love that you have at the beginning. The little things that you're willing to overlook at the start, they become real irritants after about three months together. <laughs> it takes time 
and it takes effort. And that's one of the things that we're not good at in our culture. We're not accustomed to having relationships. And one of the reasons we don't know how to have deep and abiding relationships is because of this. So I think that's part of the answer to your, to your question. There's no easy answer to this. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Human beings are very complex animals, and it just doesn't work that way. Yes? Well, I mean, I certainly think that that is true. Um, what I would say to you, though, is that, um, and, and come on Sunday, we're, we're dealing with Ephesians, and we're going to be talking about spiritual gifts this week, as a matter of fact, um, because it can be a cop-out. Uh, people can say, well, that's not my gift, uh, especially when it comes to evangelism. It's interesting to note that if you look in the New Testament, the gift of evangelism is primarily a gift for the laity. That is not the gift for clergy. The gift of clergy is teaching. That's the responsibility of the clergy, to raise up the lay people so that they can feel, fulfill their ministry. There's only one person, incidentally, in the entire New Testament that's referred to as an evangelist. Did you know that? Only one person gets the title evangelist. Not John. No. Philip. Philip is called the evangelist. Philip the evangelist. Now, not St. Philip for whom this church is named. This church is named for Philip the apostle. Philip the evangelist was a deacon. A servant ministry. So evangelism is the responsibility primarily of the lay people. So, yes, I do agree that, that some people have that gift. The point, however, is that regardless of what your gift is, every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. Right. Well, no, nobody's supposed to worry about the results. Uh, you've heard me say before, no one is ever going to hear on that last great day when the books are open and we're standing before the great white throne of judgment, nobody's ever going to hear, well done, good and successful servant. That's not what God is interested in. What God is interested in is faithfulness. Why shouldn't we be worried about the results? We shouldn't be worried about the results because the work of conversion is not our job. The, the parable of the sower makes this point very clear. The sower goes out and he sows seed, doesn't he? And we're told that some of it fell on what? The hard path. Some of it fell on rocky soil. Some fell amongst thorns. And some fell on fertile soil. Now, if you take that literally and you do the math, that means about one-fourth of the time when you sow the seed, it's going to fall on fertile soil. 
Only one-fourth of the time. Well, that's, that's not really great. That's not your job to worry about that. Your job is to be faithful. And that's what I'm saying. Oftentimes people want to say, well, that's not my gift. It is your responsibility. The, the results part of it is entirely up to God. That's entirely up to God. Let me come back to Marianne, and then I'll come back to you. We're not supposed to talk about sex, religion, and what? Well, we talk about the other two all the time these days. I mean, I mean, sex seems to be the only thing we do talk about. Yeah, and I understand that. And what I would say is um, the church, I've got to be careful, I don't want to offend anybody, but the honest answer is, it doesn't matter what the church was teaching people to do in those days. Jesus is very clear. The New Testament is very clear. We are called to share our faith. The church should have been preparing its people and equipping its people to do that more effectively. Now, I think what happened was we wanted to be polite society, and so we didn't want to talk about politics, and we didn't want to talk about money because that sounds you know, so gauche and so forth. I understand all of that. But the church, of all things, should never have said, don't talk about religion. Okay, okay, well, yeah, Emily Post and a lot of other people probably told you you shouldn't talk about those things. But we have a missionary mandate as Christians. We have a responsibility to do that. And one of the things perhaps we need to do here at St. Philip's is we need to have a class on personal evangelism. Uh, and that's something that to sort of equip you so that you can feel more effective in doing this. And um, it's one of the things that's on my to-do list. I promise you we're going to have something like that. But one of the ways that you can do it is simply by gossiping the gospel. You know, it, it's really not as difficult as you think it is. Um, what is the good news? Uh, the good news is that every single person, every single person in this room, and I would say every single person in the world is looking for the same thing. What are they looking for? They are looking for the peace which passes human understanding. They're looking for what the Jews called shalom, peace of mind, peace of heart, satisfaction. It's the thing that Jesus had that nobody else had, and it's the thing that drew people to Jesus in droves. Jesus had contentment. Jesus was perfectly content. And we have people that have more in terms of material possessions than any generation in history, and yet we are not content. Somebody once asked Henry Ford, how much money would be enough? And you know what he said? Just a little bit more. And so everybody in this world is looking for contentment. And the scripture is very clear. There's only one place you're going to find it. And that is with a relationship in Jesus Christ. So you know how to tell people that. If you're living the kind of life that Jesus describes up here, if you are truly being salt and light in the world, people are going to see that you are different. I mean, I want you... Keep your finger there in Matthew, if we ever get back to Matthew today, but probably not. That's okay. Turn to Acts for just a minute, to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 2. And I want you to notice something here. It's quite remarkable. It's a description, very familiar passage, a description of the early church. Acts chapter 2, 
verse 42. And this is what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having, here's the critical phrase, favor with all people. And the Lord did what? Added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Yes. So here's what's interesting. It doesn't mean every individual. It means all class of people. What's happened here? Well, one of the things that I find remarkable about Acts chapter 2 is that this is right after the Lord's ascension. It's right after Pentecost. Here's the amazing thing. The church in those early days was not doing what we would call outreach. Outreach will come. Mission will come. But they're not doing that in Acts chapter 2 in these early days. What are they doing and doing it well? They're doing in-reach. That is to say they are caring for one another. They are concerned with one another. If anybody has need, the church is supplying the need. They're not counting on the government doing it for them. No such thing as social security. The church is caring for its members. It's concerned with its brothers and its sisters. And it is worshiping the Lord. They're filled with joy. No one is in any need. There is a fellowship. There is a love. And what is happening? The Lord is adding daily to their number days those who are being saved. Well, you say, well, how is he adding to their number if they're not out there doing mission work? And the point is they are living the gospel in such a way that an outside world that is searching for the very thing that the church has sees the church has it, and they are provoked to jealousy. And they said, I don't know what those Christians have, but I want to be a part of it. Now, just imagine if we were really living like that. There'd be people out there in the world. We'd be the talk of the town. They'd say, I want to be a part. I don't know what's going on over there at St. Philip's. I don't know what the heck's going on over there. Something's going on over there. I want to be a part of that. And the Lord would add to our number daily those who were being saved. And as more and more people with different spiritual gifts came in, the church would then be empowered to do the kind of outreach that is necessary to bring the nations to their knees. But this is where it begins, you see. This is how it starts. And it is a challenge. We need to get to, and, and, and how do you get to that point, you say? Well, I'm going to tell you the same way. You have to get to know each other. It, it's an investment of time and energy. There are going to be people coming into church that you don't know, and you're going to have to get to know them. You're going to have to begin to build relationships with them. You're going to have to go up and introduce yourself to them. You're going to have to invite them to lunch. You're going to have to invite them to brunch. You're going to have to invest the time and the energy into it because that is how God the Holy Spirit works in a community. He works through the people. In some respects, it's very simple. How many of you remember that old sitcom, Cheers? Remember that? What was the theme song? I want to go where everybody knows my name. And let me tell you, whether you're old or whether you're young, you want to go to a place where you know the people love you and they care about you 
and they are going to be there for you in the toughest times. And that is one of the things that the world has so little of today. So that's part of how we become the kind of community that transforms the world. Mar, did you have a... When it's um, not so much our words, but it's our actions and our willingness to listen to people's concerns rather than trying to give them Christianity 101. I always wear a cross, and people have reacted to it. And one dark woman and TJ Maxx said to me, I'm going to ask you a question because I, you're one of them and won't lie. Yeah. And I said, one of what? <laughs> well, you're a Christian. She said, so I'm going to ask you a question. I mean, it was nothing. She wanted to know which yeah. person smelt best. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know she sort of wanted to ask me because she thought that I would be honest. I would be honest. Yeah. When St. Francis sent out his followers, he sent them out with the words, which were a variation of the Great Commission. He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Now, there is something to be said for that. However, that too could become a cop-out. What the Scripture says is we are to proclaim Jesus Christ by word and deed. Jesus says, whoever testifies about Him in the world, He will testify about them to His Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before the world, I will deny. So, the Scripture says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. So it's both and. Uh, all words and no action is hypocrisy. All actions and no words can be chalked up to, well, just a very nice person. And even though we may wear religious jewelry, I think one of the problems that we face in our culture, particularly when it comes to the cross, is that the cross has, has lost its power in some areas in that it's become an adornment. I'll tell you a story that was told by the dean of Washington Cathedral when I was at Virginia Seminary years ago. He was uh, in a jewelry shop up in Washington, D.C., and a lady came in, and she was looking for a gift for a confirmation. She was not a churchgoer, but she was looking for a gift for a confirmation. And, um, and the man said, well, you know, you would probably like a cross. That Somebody would like a cross as a confirmation gift. She said, okay, well, show me some crosses. And he took her over the man behind the counter and he had all of these crosses laid out and he said, well, there are hundreds of them. And uh, she tapped on the glass and she said, I think I like that one there. And so he pulled out a cross and gave, she said, no, not that one, that one. And she tapped on the glass again. So he pulled out another one and she said, no, not that one. And he said, well, ma'am, you're going to have to be more specific than that. And she said, that one, that one with the little man on it. See, that's the world in which we live. And so we can't automatically assume that we are operating out of a Christian context. We are operating out of a post-Christian context. And the challenges that we face are remarkably similar to the ones that the Apostle Paul faced when he went into a pre-Christian Greco-Roman culture. That was 20 years ago when that happened, so it's even more so these days. So the challenges are great, but Jesus makes it very clear, you're the salt. How many of you think the world is in moral and spiritual decline? How many of you think the world's in trouble? 
What's the answer? Jesus said, you're the answer. You're the salt. It's your job to stem the tide of decay. It's your job to show people what living is really like, what it really tastes like to have some zest in life. Do you feel the world is dark? Do you feel that people are darkened in their terms of their understanding? How many of you think we're living in dark times? Darkened understanding. People don't seem to comprehend. It's as though we've stepped through the looking glass. You could be a man today, a woman tomorrow. You could be any number of things. There's a great deal of confusion in our culture. Do we need illumination? Well, where's it going to come from? You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it for? And what will happen to the world? If you hide your light under a bushel, the world will only get darker. The world will only get colder. That's our calling, my friends. That's our commission. That's our job. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise. The Sermon on the Mount is something that is very familiar to us, and yet we read through it, we find that it is very, very challenging. It is not easy for us to do these things. These things do not come to us naturally. That's why we need the supernatural new birth that you alone can bring. We need the grace and the presence of your Holy Spirit that we might have the kind of courage, the wherewithal, all the gifts that are necessary, Lord, to go out and speak the truth, the good news, to a dark, dying, and needy world. If not us, then who, O oh Lord? Grant us the grace to do it, to fear nothing but the loss of you, and to trust that if we are faithful, you will take care of the success. These things we ask in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you. By the way, next week will be the last class before we break for the holiday. So next week class, week after that, we'll be taking a break. God bless you. See you around.